Have you ever wondered or thought what it would be like to be a paratrooper? Especially those guys from World War II. The whole idea of jumping out of a plane, being a paratrooper, was brand new in World War II. The concept of having plane, troops jump out of a plane over enemy territory, that wasn't done before. So just imagine there you are, World War II started, you've volunteered in the U.S. Army, they put you in this provisional parachute group, that's what it was first called. You have no experience to rely on, there's no such thing as a paratrooper vo- uh, veteran. You get a paltry amount of training before you're shipped off to war. Conceptually, you know that in war, the hour will come when you're going to have to get on that plane, fly over enemy territory, jump out of that plane really high up, something humans aren't supposed to do, plummet to the earth and trust your parachute to open and safely deliver you to the ground without getting lost or shot in the process. You know that hour will come, but the thought of it makes you nervous. When that hour actually does come, though, it's a whole different story. You're on the bomber with 30 other guys. Most of them are teenagers. Things are feeling real. Mid-flight, you stare at that door. You know the hour is fast approaching when you're going to have to jump out of that door. You're risking your life. You you could die. There's a chance, a good chance you will die. You're getting behind enemy lines. Other guys are scared. They're shaking. They're shivering. They're sweating. Some are vomiting. You start taking enemy flak. The doors open. That rush of freezing cold air comes in. And the commander yells, it's time. And now what do you feel? Now it's all real. A sudden wave of terror and dread comes over you. You realize the hours come. You have to jump. You wait your turn in the back of the line. You can feel your stomach in your throat. You can't breathe. Your heart's racing. You're scared. Everything in you says you shouldn't do this. You're not supposed to do this. But that's, that's what you signed up for. These are your orders. This is why you came. So in that moment, what would you do? Would you jump? Would you back out? I'm sure you're probably thinking I wouldn't have signed up for that in the first place. But at least conceptually, you, you get this struggle. There would be in that moment there would be this real internal struggle to go through with what you signed up for. You'd have to fight every feeling you have to obey your orders and, and to do it. Well, in a somewhat similar way, only in a much more serious and terrifying fashion, that's A bit of what Jesus felt and experienced on the night before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane. Open your Bibles to Mark 14. Mark chapter 14. We started into this last week. We want to continue today. Mark 14, we see Jesus the night before his death. After that last supper, they travel over to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus stops to pray. Something he had done many times, actually. But in that garden, something changed. Something new came over him. Verse 33 says he began to be very distressed and troubled. He was experiencing something new, and that was our focus last week, the experience of Jesus in Gethsemane. What was he experiencing? Terror, anguish of soul, inner trepidation and and turmoil. He tells us his soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. He's in so much mental anguish that it was taking a toll on his body. He's sweating drops of blood. His body was ready to give out from the pressure it was putting on him. What was causing this anguish? Well, it was the cross. Just hours away, Jesus knows he will face the cross, and with it, not just a physical death, but a spiritual death in the sense that he will be made sin. He will be our sin bearer. He will suffer that wrath of God on the cross. And that was a terrifying prospect considered from his humanity. He's the eternal son of God, but he lived fundamentally as a man on earth. So he was 
mortified in his human nature. And this soul-crushing pressure threatened to literally kill his human body. What he experienced, it wasn't a sham, it wasn't a charade. It was a genuine, real, non-sinful experience per his human nature. And last time we saw Jesus in his anguish. We saw him face it, we saw him endure it through prayer. And learned a good lesson for us about prayer as well. We didn't get to what he prayed, just the fact that through prayer God delivered him through his trial. And we learned a similar lesson for us, that there's no promise God will deliver you from your trials through prayer. But there is a promise that he will deliver you through your trials through prayer every time. And that's what Jesus experienced. So that was our focus last time, the experience of Jesus in Gethsemane, what he was going through on the inside. But there's more to this passage. I mean, this is a a big, deep passage. And this morning, moving on, we want to get into the content of his prayer, what he actually prayed. What can we learn from his actual prayer in the garden? That's what we want to get at this morning. In Mark 14, the content of his prayer, it's just related in two verses. Two verses tell us basically what he was praying. I want to get you back up to speed, though. So look at Mark 14, and we'll start reading at verse 32 and get caught up here. Mark 14, look at verse 32. It says, They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. We'll stop there for now. Reading this, though, like I said, there's really just two verses that summarize what he prayed for over the course of about an hour. With our time today, we want to study what Jesus prayed and see what we can learn ourselves from that prayer in Gethsemane. Now, you might be wondering, what's, what's the big deal? Why would you spend a whole sermon just on two verses? But the deeper you get into Christ's time in Gethsemane, the, the more there is to see and, and the harder it can be to understand. That's because you're starting to get into foreign territory. We're considering this one person who had two natures, a human and a divine. And it's, it's like exploring the, the depths of the ocean. The deeper you get, the stranger things become. It's like a whole different world down there. And if you want to understand it, it, it takes some time to explore. And so it is with Christ's prayer in Gethsemane. We're seeing the intersection of this human and divine nature. We'll need some time to understand what he was going through and, and what, what he's praying. Now look again verse 35, these two verses. It says he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So we see his prayer and the summary of the content of his prayer. And, you know, it begs some questions. You, you yourself, you probably have some questions. You know, what, what, what's he saying? What, what, what's he praying here? How can he pray this? I mean, Jesus, he's fully God, right? So why is he praying this? Why is he praying at all? Why doesn't he just tap into his divine nature, get himself out of trouble. Also, we kind of get the impression that Jesus is praying to avoid the cross. Is that 
Is that right? Is that, is that true? I mean, I thought he came for that purpose. Is this just like a moment of weakness? How can he pray otherwise? Is Jesus praying against the will of God here? We've got questions. There's a lot of questions here, and that, that's why we need to spend a whole sermon on two verses. These are, these are serious questions that need to be answered, and that's what we're going to do. As a side note, I hope you guys come to really value verse-by-verse expository preaching wherever you hear it, because when you do that, you can't skip over the hard stuff. You can't just skip over those troubling verses that challenge you. You've got got to deal with them. But for us, far from skipping it, these are actually extremely rich verses, and we want to dwell in them. That's what we're going to do. The humanity of Jesus, I mean, it's sure on display here. Everybody agrees about that. But that means you're not going to get far in understanding what's going on in Gethsemane unless you have a real solid biblical foundation in regards to Christ's humanity. The Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God. He's God the Son from eternity past. But in the incarnation, God the Son took on a human nature and a human body such that he became fully God and fully man. Two natures, one person. And that in itself is so foreign to us, it's hard to understand. And that said, we tend to focus on the divine nature of Jesus. But don't neglect thinking about what it means for Jesus to be fully human as well. That's something we take for granted. His humanity deserves our equal attention. And I found there is just as much confusion and misunderstanding over the humanity of Jesus, just as much over the deity of Jesus. So first, if you want to understand what he's praying, you've got to know a thing or two about what it means for Jesus to truly be a man. What does that really mean? And so actually, to start our time, I want to give you like a quick crash course on the humanity of Jesus. That's how we're going to start here. Let's start with the incarnation. Think about the incarnation. You've got the Son coming to earth, taking on a human nature and a human body. So Mary, she's overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and the result is Jesus. One person, he's the God-man. Technically, God did not become a man. God did not become a man. God the Son did not change his form. He did not lose his divine nature. God the Son added to himself a human nature and a human body. The result is that Jesus of Nazareth is one person with two natures, that fully divine and the fully human. How does that work? Well, that, how do those fit together? That's the great mystery to us. All we can say is that these two natures come together without confusion and without change. They're indivisible and inseparable. So as human nature and as divine nature, they don't blend together and form a hybrid, but they also don't separate. They are two together. Now, during his time on earth, how did these two natures interact they didn't cancel each other out, but it, we can safely say Jesus, while on earth, he independently gave up, or rather he gave up the independent exercise of his divine attributes. You can say that. He gave up the independent exercise of his divine attributes. In other words, his divine nature was veiled behind his human flesh. Nothing was changed in God the Son. He didn't lose his divine nature. But he chose to live fundamentally as a man. And that explains that Philippians 2, 7 verse, which says he emptied himself. And the verse itself explains what it means. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant 
and being made in the likeness of men. So this emptying, it was not a subtraction, it was an addition. Philippians 2.8 says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So coming to earth, Jesus humbled himself. He allowed his heavenly glory and divine authority to be veiled per obedience to the Father's will and to take on a human nature, to live as a man. And he even obeyed the Father's will to the point of death, death on the cross, which he did in our place to redeem us. And that was the plan. Redeeming mankind required a true human, a second Adam, who would come and fulfill all righteousness, live in perfect obedience to the Father, and yet die as a true substitute for mankind. Jesus had to be a man to do this. There's no concept of death for his divine nature. He had to be made like us in all ways, yet without sin. Jesus came as that second Adam. He was fully human in every way, except minus that sin nature. And so for this reason, we should expect to see Jesus living during his time on earth, living as a man, living fundamentally as a man. And that's what we see. He gets hungry, thirsty, tired. He needs to sleep and rest Sometimes he's just totally exhausted. His body functions and ages like a normal human body. He feels pain physically and emotionally. He cries real tears. He suffers inner anguish and turmoil. Yeah, he has love and compassion. Physically and emotionally, Jesus lived as a man and he was seen as a man. Remember that verse, Jesus comes back to his hometown and he, he, he sees all the people who he grew up with. Only now he's like a miracle worker. He's like a celebrity. And so they're confused. And so Matthew 13, 54, they say, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Jesus did not work any wonders growing up. He lived just like a normal guy so to speak, without sin. His divine nature was completely veiled. So growing up, they only knew him as a man. Look, did Jesus grow physically? Yes. The divine nature didn't grow at all, but his human nature sure did. Also, did Jesus learn? Yes. Divine nature didn't learn anything. His divine nature was omniscient, but his human nature did His human nature did not possess omniscience. And since he chose to live as a man, he had to learn everything like we learn. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn the alphabet. He had to learn math. He had to learn God's word. His divine nature possessed omniscience, knew everything, knew everything. But Jesus did not rely on his divine nature while he was on earth. He was not tapping into it on purpose. That's the whole point. So he had to learn math the hard way, so to speak. This does not diminish his divine nature in any way. It just showcases he really took on a real human nature and he lived really as a human. And this explains some key verses that some people don't understand, like Luke chapter 2, verse 40, which says of Jesus, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. He was increasing in wisdom. Luke 2.52, and Jesus kept 
increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He's growing up like he should. Mark 13:32. Remember this? Jesus saying of this timing of the second coming, he says of that hour or that day no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but the father alone. So he doesn't know the timing of his own second coming. How's that possible? Does the divine nature of Jesus know the timing of the second coming? Of course. Does his human nature? No. And so as a person on earth, did he know? He didn't know. The Father did not reveal it to him, and Jesus didn't cheat. He was not going to tap into his divine nature to find out. That would violate his whole purpose for coming, which was to live truly and authentically as a second Adam from start to finish. And there could be no cheating. You couldn't cheat. Now at this point you might be wondering, what about the miracles of Jesus? Yes, his miracles testified of his divine nature, for he was showcasing that he and the Father are one. But his access to his own divine power came from total reliance on the Holy Spirit. And that's it. Do you realize that Jesus worked no wonders until after the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism, which inaugurated his formal ministry? That's when he started all of his miracle working. But that's, of course, that's why the Spirit came to him. You realize the divine nature of Jesus had nothing to benefit by the coming of the Holy Spirit. His divine nature had nothing to gain by the Spirit's presence, but his human nature had a lot to gain by the Spirit's presence, namely access to God's power. And if on earth Jesus was self-limiting his own access to his own divine power, then he was going to need the Holy Spirit if he was still going to testify of God's divine power, which he did in fact possess. And so it's a remarkable thing. We find Jesus living as a true man in this profound dependence upon the Holy Spirit for everything, for strength, for knowledge, for wisdom, and at times for supernatural power. Now, this is a lot of stuff. Let me give you an illustration. I think it will tie it all together. I must admit, I'm stealing this from Bruce Ware in his book, The Man, Christ Jesus, just like the best book on the humanity of Jesus, but it's too good to pass up. So picture a king, this great and glorious king, and he rules over this mighty kingdom. The king possesses total authority and power. Whatever he says goes. His word is the law, and his every command is obeyed. He also possesses endless splendor and majesty. Everything he owns is made of gold. He has the best clothes. Nothing but silk touches his body. He eats the best food. He's got a team of cooks that you know, create him fine dishes for every meal. He's cared for by the best doctors. Just the slightest ailment, he's treated by a team of experts. And he's protected by the best guard. He's like an army ready to defend him at, at any moment. One day, though, this king visits the slums of his kingdom and sees a beggar and he wonders, what would it be like to live life as a beggar? And the thought can't, it never leaves his mind, so he decides to find out. He moves out of the royal palace and he moves on to the streets. Instead of fine clothing, he dons smelly, dirty, torn rags. Instead of fine dining, he, he's digging through a trash heap for some rotten food. In all ways, he has chosen to temporarily but truly live life like a beggar. 
He willingly limits himself and he accepts life as a beggar. Before, when he was hungry, all he had to do was just call the royal chefs and give him an amazing meal. Now, he has to accept starvation and hunger. Before, if he got sick, a team of doctors would instantly treat him. Now, he has to accept sickness and ill health. And before, if he was ever mistreated or threatened in the slightest, his army would just fight for him to the death. Now he must suffer and accept injustice and cruelty. And here's the thing, though. During his time as a beggar, is he still king? Yes, he is. He's still king. Does he still possess the qualities of kingship? Yes, he does. Does he possess all rights and authority as king? Still does. Does he possess all power and privileges as king? Yes, he does. But he chose not to express his rights and privileges because he wanted to really live as a beggar. His kingly powers were possessed but not expressed. Indeed, if he was really going to live as a beggar, I mean really do it, he had to veil all of his kingly qualities. He had to accept the restrictions and limitations that would place on his kingly rights and privileges. That's the only way he could be king, but truly live as a beggar. And I think that's probably the closest analogy we can make to what God the Son did in the Incarnation. He was divine, but he chose to live the life of a true man. He didn't lose any of his divine glory or rights or powers, but he did limit their expression that he could Truly live as a man. He accepted the limitations of humankind to be one of us. How far was God the Son willing to go in this temporary humbling? And that's up to the Father. He did this in obedience to the Father's will. And it was the Father's will that the Son would take this humbling to the point of death. Even death on the cross. Now it's his final test. Jesus had to be tested and proven as that perfect second Adam. And his final test was obedience unto death on the cross. I want you to listen to this verse. It's a really important verse when it comes to this. Hebrews 5 speaks about how God made Jesus our sympathetic high priest. In Hebrews 5, and verses 7 through 9, it says this, Hebrews 5, 7. It says, In the days of his flesh... He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. That verse is actually talking about Gethsemane. We'll see that later. Verse 8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things in which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. How do you explain those verses? He learned obedience and then he was made perfect. Those verses have tripped up many people. But now we have this foundational understanding of his humanity. It actually makes perfect sense. It's not saying this is the first time Jesus ever obeyed God or before he used to disobey, now he's obeying. It says he learned obedience from the things in which he suffered. It means he learned a new type of obedience as a man. What type of obedience? Costly obedience. Painful obedience. That's the type of obedience God the Son did not know before. 
But now the Father was calling on the Son to humble Himself, Philippians 2.8, and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's a new type of obedience for the Son that came at great personal cost, at great suffering, and He did not know that type of obedience before. And in so doing this, though, He was made perfect. What does that mean? It has nothing to do with His divine nature. It's talking about His human nature. The word for perfect, taliao, means perfect in the sense of being made complete, mature, or finished. So what that means in Hebrews 5 is God the Father's design was for Jesus to become this perfect high priest for us. He'd be the perfect priest and the perfect offering. But Jesus could not be the perfect human high priest, the complete sympathetic high priest, until he obeyed the Father all the way to death. It all hinged on Christ's obedience all the way to death. He could not become the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey Him unless He first obeyed the Father all the way. Now, one, one final question here. So, that obedience we're talking about. Was that easy? Was the obedience of Jesus unto the Father, unto death, was that easy? No. It was hard fought. That's what verse 7 in Hebrews 5 is all about. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save his soul from death. And he was heard because of his piety. That verse is undoubtedly talking about Gethsemane. And the verse makes clear his obedience was not easy. It caused Jesus great anguish and inner turmoil. That was our whole sermon last week. He had to fight temptation to obey. He had to pray for strength to obey. Now that finally brings us back to Mark chapter 14. Jesus in the garden praying. That was all like a little extra introduction for you. We need that foundation of his humanity to get this right. But now let's, let's get back to Mark 14. Jesus in Gethsemane. And in the garden, you need to distinguish between the struggle of Jesus and the prayer of Jesus. Let's talk about both, the struggle and the prayer. Did Jesus struggle and wrestle to obey the Father? Yes. That's why he's praying in the first place. That's why he's crying out to his dad, Abba, Father, Daddy. This is not theatrics. It's real struggle. That's why he's praying. About what? Remember, Jesus is living according to his human nature. He's not cheating. So he's, he's facing this under the power of a human nature, which is inherently weak. And his human nature has a human will. And his human will does not have the desire to suffer the infinite wrath of God. Perfectly understandable. That's a non-sinful desire. But Jesus knows that's not the Father's will. So he's facing real temptation to just heed his own will and disobey. Temptation is real. Never sinned. Temptation is real. It's just like when he was tempted in the wilderness. You remember that? He starts off by fasting for 40 days. And then it says he became hungry. I call that the biggest understatement in the Bible. <laughs> then he became hungry. So his human nature was crying out for food. He is starving to death. But he can't eat anything because the Father's will was don't eat anything until this is over. 
Well, after those 40 days, he's starving. Then Satan comes along and tempts Jesus and says, hey, why don't you turn these stones into bread? That was real temptation for his human nature. His human nature was, was dying to eat some bread. But that was not the will of the Father. So Jesus had to fight to deny self and obey. Jesus, he's just doing what he tells us to do. Deny self, pick up your cross, and follow. He did that first. That's why he tells you to do it. We don't need to diminish his struggle. Some people want to diminish his struggle because they think it makes him less God. This doesn't affect his deity whatsoever. It only highlights his true humanity and his perfect humanity at that because we would have failed in all those ways, but he endured and he obeyed the Father when presented with the greatest temptation ever. Already there's a lot we can learn from the struggle. Namely, it's okay to struggle. In fact, you better struggle. You're going to have to struggle. You will face temptation to disobey the Father's will at some point. Often. You will desire to seek and to serve yourself. But you're going to have to fight to deny yourself, to pick up your cross and to follow. And it might cost you. It might cost you. But costly obedience is the mark of a true disciple. And how are you going to overcome? So that you don't fall into temptation? Through prayer. That's why he prayed. That's why we pray. And God gives us the strength, the endurance to overcome. Now, speaking of that prayer, now we can truly start to wrestle with the prayer of Jesus. I said we need to distinguish between the struggle of Jesus and the prayer of Jesus. Yes, he struggled to obey, but then he starts to pray. And what's, what's he really praying? What's, what's, the, what's the gist of his prayer? Let me give you the, the quick like traditional view of what most people believe. Traditionally, the belief is that Jesus was praying, according to his human nature, that if possible, he might avoid the cross. He just doesn't have to go. His human nature wanted to preserve self. That's understandable. We get that. But Jesus knows, even though that's his human desire, that's not the will of the Father. So he makes his request conditional, and he limits his own prayer, and he says, not what I will, but what you will. So he doesn't want to go to the cross. He wants to avoid the cross, but he says otherwise. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. You could probably make it fit. But at least I see some significant problems with that view. And primarily, you know, if Jesus is praying to avoid the cross, that means he's praying against the known will of God. That's a problem. I mean, did Jesus know that going to the cross was 100% without a doubt the will of the Father? Did he know that? Yeah, he knew that. He's told us like a million times. He's already predicted his death. That very night, he told the disciples, me, the shepherd, is about to be struck down. I mean, there's no surprise factor. And he said he came only to do the will of the Father. He knows, and there's no question. Also, consider this. Do you remember when Peter confessed Jesus as Christ? After that, Christ went on to tell them that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer, and then be killed. And when hearing that, what did Peter say? Peter rebuked Jesus. He said, God forbid it, that shall never happen to you. And to that, do you remember how Jesus responded? 
Matthew 16, 23, Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. I mean, he knows God's interest, God's will is for the cross. It's just no doubt. And any attempt to hinder him from the cross is satanic. Also, think about this verse right here. This takes place not long before Gethsemane. John chapter 12, verses 27, 28. Jesus says, John 12, 27. He says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And think about that verse. It's not long before Gethsemane. Jesus, he's already starting to feel that trouble in his soul. But he says he's not going to pray to be saved from that hour because that's, that's why he came. That's the whole purpose. So he prays, Father, just glorify your name. That's what we expect from Jesus. At every turn, he knows the Father's will. He's on board with the Father to face that hour. Now, you could construe Gethsemane to be his moment of weakness, but you, you still have Jesus praying against the known will of the Father. And that's a problem. You might say, but it's conditional, right? It's conditional. Verse 35, Mark 14, look at verse 35. It says, he says, if it's possible, let it pass. The problem is, in, in the Greek, that's known as a first-class conditional. It just means he's assuming the condition to be true. In other words, to Jesus, this request is not hypothetical. It's something he believes is totally possible. In fact, in verse 36, he says, all things are possible for you. So in the mind of Jesus, he's asking God something that's within the realm of possibility. But for God to violate his own will, that is not in the realm of possibility. Another big problem goes back to Hebrews 5. Remember verse 7, which I read to you? It says, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. There's no doubt that's talking about Gethsemane. Did you catch that last phrase? It says, he was heard because of his piety. It's telling us that whatever Jesus prayed, God listened and granted his request. His request was not denied. The traditional view says that Jesus prayed to avoid Gethsemane and God rejected the request. He said no. That's another problem. Jesus always prays in perfect faith and his prayers are always answered. John 11.42, Jesus himself said, the Father always hears him. So again, just to be clear, I believe Jesus had a real human struggle to obey. And go to the cross, that's fine. We, we already talked about that. But I don't think that his response to that struggle was to go on and pray against the will of God to get through it. It would be totally different if he didn't know what the will of God was. It would be totally different. But in this case, he knows 100% this is the will of the Father. And that it presents a problem. It's really inconsistent for everything we know about Jesus. Well, then we have to ask, well, what's, what's he really praying then? What's, what, what's he getting at? Well, I don't believe Jesus was praying to avoid the cross at all, but something actually different. And let me, let me show you from the text itself. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. All that matters is what the text says. So let me show you. Mark 14, look at verse 35 again. 
He prays that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. Again, it's called a first-class conditional. He believes this is possible. He believes it's possible for the hour to pass him by. Hour, of course, that's a metaphor for the time of wrath on the cross. The real question is, what does pass him by mean? Literally, it says pass from him, par erkamai in the Greek. When this word is used in reference to time, like it is right here, it doesn't mean pass away, but simply to pass, like the passage of time. So that means Jesus, he's not praying that the hour will pass away, meaning that it won't come at all. He's not praying to escape this hour. Rather, he's praying that the hour will pass when it comes. In other words, he's praying that he will not be stuck in that hour forever. He's praying that he will not be stuck in the hour of God's wrath forever. And stay with me. Verse 36. It fits what he says in verse 36. He says, remove this cup from me. Word here, remove. Parapharo means take away from. The cup is another metaphor for the wrath of God on the cross, of course. He asked for the cup to be taken away, removed from him. In what sense? Jesus is asking that the cup be removed from him after he has drunk it. After he has drunk the cup. He's asking that the cup not remain in his hands forever. Jesus knows he has to drink the cup. John 12, that's what he came for. And he said, I'm not going to pray that I don't have to drink it. Yes, facing the wrath of God on the cross was terrifying and caused him great anguish. But you know what's more terrifying? Facing the wrath of God forever. And that, I believe, is his real struggle in prayer here. Listen to this. There's actually a very strong Old Testament frame of reference for helping understand his prayer. It comes from Isaiah 51. Just just listen. That section of Isaiah tells us a lot about God's messianic servant, like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Isaiah 51, though, the setting is the day of the Lord. It's the time when the cup of God's wrath is poured out on the nations, on God's enemies. But the cup of God's wrath is first poured out on God's people, on Jerusalem. And so verse 17 calls on Jerusalem as those who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. Because of their sin, they suffered God's wrath. The cup was given to them, they drank it, and it remained in their hands, indicating they were still under his wrath. But then verse 21 says this, Isaiah 51:21. God says, Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people. Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. I will put it into the hand of your enemies. So here's a picture. Israel was under God's wrath because of their sin. The cup of wrath was left in their hands. But God promises that one day he will remove the cup from their hands. They will be restored. And furthermore, verse 22 says, they will never have to drink it again. And instead, God will take that cup and give it to his enemies. So there's a lesson that national Israel will not be under God's wrath forever. 
This gives us a potential context for understanding Jesus and his prayer. Because after all, he's that suffering servant. He's the one that comes and takes the cup of wrath for us. I mean, he drinks the cup so we don't have to ever drink the cup. He will take it into his hands and he will drain it to the dregs for us, right? And what happens next? After Jesus takes the cup, what's supposed to happen? What's the plan for the servant after he drinks the cup? The plan is that Jesus will die drinking the cup, but that he will rise again. That he will not stay dead. He will not stay in wrath. Though he's given over to death, the Father promises not to abandon his soul to Sheol, nor to allow his Holy One to undergo decay. Psalm 16, in reference to the Messiah. That's a key promise that Jesus looks forward to so as to endure the cross. The cross will be terrible, but what gets him through is the hope of resurrection, that the Father will not abandon him in his wrath forever. Jesus will endure being God forsaken for us, but he can't endure being God forsaken forever. And his hope is that he will drink the cup, all of it, and that the Father will take it away when it's done and restore him. That, I believe, is is the focus of his prayer in Gethsemane. It's as if he's praying, Father, if possible, and it is possible, let the hour pass from me. Don't leave me in this hour. Dad, all things are possible for you. Take the cup away. Remove it. Don't leave the cup in my hands forever. Let me be able to drink it all and say, it is finished. Don't abandon my soul to Sheol rescue me after this hour. It's like he's saying that. At the end of his prayer, Jesus says literally, not what I will, but you, period. Not what I will, but you. It's an incomplete phrase. It's up to us to finish it. Most people make it a contrast, like Jesus is contrasting his will with the Father's will. But it's very, very possible to take this as Jesus saying, but this is not what I will, but you, what you will. In other words, this is Jesus affirming that his prayer for the cup to be removed, that is the Father's will. That's why he's praying it, because that is the Father's will. So instead of Jesus praying against the Father's will, he is praying precisely according to the Father's will. That's what gets him through. Indeed, it is the Father's will that he, that he will be resurrected. And Jesus defeats his temptation by praying according to that will. And like Hebrews 5, 7 says, after praying to the one able to save his soul from death, he was hurt. He was hurt. God will save his soul. In prayer, Jesus was entrusting himself to God. He's choosing to trust and obey God's good will. And that's what really strengthens him to endure. As a very final question, you might be asking, well, why, why does Jesus need to pray to be resurrected? Doesn't he know that's the Father's will too? Yes, he does. But it's perfectly acceptable to pray according to the Father's will. That, that's what we're supposed to do. And also, you have to remember, Gethsemane is a temptation scene. Gethsemane is a temptation scene. Jesus tells his disciples right after this to keep watching and praying 
that they may not enter enter into temptation. It's the same for him. That's why he's praying. He's being tempted in the garden. How? Temptation to avoid the cross? Yeah, like we said earlier, he had a real struggle. But what's the greater temptation? Facing the wrath of God or facing the wrath of God forever? And I believe that when Jesus prayed, he had already resolved to face the cross. But he was still battling temptation. He's still struggling with temptation. What temptation? The temptation to doubt the Father. The temptation to doubt that God was really going to rescue his soul from death. That would be truly unbearable for the Son. His hope was resurrection. And he prayed according to that hope. And that's what enabled him to endure. Is it so hard to imagine Satan, who had increased activity around the cross, we know this, Hard to imagine Satan whispering into his ear in the garden, much like Peter said to him before, this shall never happen to you. You will never be raised. The Father will abandon you in his wrath. But Jesus defeats that temptation, not through a prayer of doubt, but through a prayer of faith. Jesus recalls the Father's will to remove the cup from him, take it from his hands after he has drunk it, And Jesus finds his hope and consolation in the Father's goodwill. And in so doing, he models for us the perfect human response to trial and temptation. Well, I told you this passage was deep. And there's more. There's a lot more. But we'll have to save that for next time. Unfortunately, I I know I've shortchanged you this morning on application from his experience and his prayer in Gethsemane is so rich for our lives. Already there's so much this says about how we face our trials, our temptations, our weaknesses, how we should pray. Thankfully, though, that will be our exclusive focus next week when we learn about the disciples in Gethsemane. The whole second half of the passage, it's all about the disciples. And that's us. I mean, we're the disciples. We too need to watch and pray that we would not enter in temptation and that's what we'll find out next time. But just with the last minute, I want to squeeze in the central application. We, we can't leave this out. The, the main thrust, when we see Jesus, what he was going through, it, it calls on us to learn this lesson. Philippians 2, 7 again, it says of Jesus, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Gethsemane helps us understand that better. It wasn't easy. Think of what he endured, what he went through. He wasn't a robot. The struggle to drink the cup to the dregs was real, as was the temptation to doubt God. You really going to get me through this? But he did. He never doubted God, not for a second. He trusted in God. He fought that temptation through prayer, and he endured. And through him, now we can be healed and reconciled and forgiven, but only because he remained obedient to the point of death. If he failed for a millisecond, we could not be redeemed. He would not be our perfect second Adam, our high priest, our offering. But he did.
Now we will never have to drink the cup because he did. If we have faith in him as our Lord and Savior. So is that you? Do you have faith in this Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Confess him as your Lord and your Savior right now. If you haven't, do it right now. Don't leave without doing so. And as you do so, then exalt him. That's the real takeaway here. Exalt him for what he did. You know, that's what God did. That, that was God the Father's response to what Jesus went through, was to exalt Jesus. And so Philippians 2 continues the very next verse after talking about his obedience unto death. Philippians 2.9 says, For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will you do that now? When you hear the name of Jesus in your heart, do you bow down because he's your Lord and he has your life? Confess him today as your Lord. He's the only one that can save you from that cup. Well, at this point in our service, I want to invite the two elders up and Kevin for our time of communion. And normally, I finish the sermon, and then I'll say a separate blurb about communion. But today, I want this whole sermon to be our heart's preparation for the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave his life for your life. That's the bread. And he exchanged your death for his death. And that's the cup. And this is now the only cup you'll ever have to drink because of what he did. If you have faith in him, all we have now is the cup of remembrance. We'll never have to drink the cup of wrath. But we do this now to remember how he drank that cup for us. And he finished and he was risen as well. If you believe this and rejoice in your heart, I want to make this time, it's like a, it should be a celebration, a victory celebration, because he drank that cup, he obeyed all the way, and then he was risen. We've overcome because he's overcome. So we say to God, be the glory because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me pray. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, indeed, to you be the glory through your Son, whom you sent, to live as a man, a true man. He faced what we faced, the same trials, the same temptations, yet he never wavered, he endured. By, precisely by clinging to your will and to your word, and to the hope, the hope of your promises, which you laid before him, a hope to be risen. Lord, amazingly, you've given us now that same promise that we will be resurrected, that we will rise to new life if we die in Christ. And that's what we do. We confess him as our Lord, our Savior. We remember and marvel at what he did, the price he paid for our redemption. We eat a piece of bread, we drink a little cup to remember, merely symbols. The Lord Jesus, you drank that real cup to the dregs of our sin. You did it for us that we would be free Keep these truths central in our heart. May they lead us to lives of worship and remembrance. We exalt you now, Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.